Hey, welcome to church. It's the Lord's Day, y'all. Amen? Uh, as Jeffrey Chaucer, who I know you read this week, said, uh, to all good things, they must have an end. And uh, this is true of the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking through Mark verse by verse, word for word, for right at two years now. And uh, all good things have to come into an end. Um, I would have to say this about this text, uh, but about a lot of things in life, is that a lot of us don't know how to end things. And I think that's true of me with the sermon series, because I keep trying to drag it on to three more sermons, because I don't want to let go of Mark. It's been too beautiful. Um, some of us, uh, we text each other instead of call each other. We don't know how to end the conversation and get off of the phone, right? If you're from the Midwest, you just say, well, looks like it's getting late. And that's signal for... Please hang up. I don't know how to say goodbye. The, we come to things like when our kids graduate, it's, it's hard to start things and it's hard to end things, right? Like some of us, we know how hard it was to start school, but it was maybe even harder for us to leave high school and go into the next thing of life. Like it was challenging and scary and all of these things. About the time that we figured out life in our hometown, a lot of us, God called us to go do something else. And so the ending of something was every bit as hard as the beginning of it. Um, as somebody who um, has graded papers in a university, I know that some of us in here did not continue in academics because you do not know how to end a run-on sentence. Right? So you just, it's like, this is such a good idea. I'm going to put five or six ideas and then just lots of commas, semicolon. Nobody knows how to use one of those. That's now become an emoji. All right? And then just throw a period at the end. We just, we don't know how to land the plane. And I, I, I get it with sports. We don't know how to finish a game. We don't know how to cancel our streaming service. For some of my older saints in here, isn't it really difficult to resign isn't it really difficult to retire, to end your service? Have you ever gotten bottomless chips and salsa? And it was just one more, right? And, or are, are we here yet? It's the end of summer. Does anybody here just kind of want to hold on to one more camp trip? Right? Are we starting? Do we have to start school? You know the kind of church we are because none of the parents want to start school. Right? We just, can we just keep camping and going out? Have you ever been in such a good book that you just didn't want it to end? You wanted to hear more about the characters and you wanted to drag the, the story on just a little bit more. And I, I, I feel that with Mark and that's actually a part of the problem that we're going to have to look at with Mark today and about why some of this is in brackets. Because the landing is just, it's like coming into Durango Airport. It's always a little dodgy. And so... Today, we're going to try to put a bow on this thing, end one thing, and go into a very different book in the coming weeks of Ecclesiastes. And so, um, maybe we could just go to the Heavenly Father, the Good Teacher, the Shepherd, and allow Him to come in and maybe just help us um, say goodbye to Mark and say hello to Ecclesiastes. Amen? So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We praise you because your Holy Spirit has indwelt in men to write the Gospel of Mark and the Scriptures to us. You have given us such treasures in the Word of God that if we lost all other possessions but we had your Word, we would be incredibly wealthy. And so thank you for your Word, inspired, inerrant, perfect, all it teaches God, it, it's a light to our path and a, a lamp for our feet. So God, we just thank you for it. Thank you for what you've done in our families and in our own lives as we studied Mark. Thank you for the repentance of sin that's come, in, that's come as we've, we've dove into your word. Thank you for the things that we've gotten to learn about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the change and a little bit more health that we have in this house because of the Gospel of Mark. That's all you're doing. And so Holy Spirit, as we finish this book, we pray that you would do much of the same that you've done from the beginning and the middle, and that is just change us through it. God, would you call us on mission? 
God, would you call us to lean heavily in trusting you? God, would you break open hard hearts here that are just resistant to belief? Scarred even in unbelief. And so, Holy Spirit, I can do none of that through my simple words. It's all on you. And so these are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Come now and guide us with your singular voice in the direction you want us to go. I pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said. Mark chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it. As a jog of what's ended in the last couple chapters in the Gospel of Mark has been the crucifixion, the burial, and now we've covered the pinnacle event of the resurrection. That Jesus was not just a role model or a figure who died a Spartacus-type death as a symbol of the uh, just dying at the hands of the unjust. He is more than that. He is the God-man who wrote himself into human history and conquered the grave. So if you stop at the cross and you don't get to the resurrection, you have no eternal life with God. That's how pivotal and critical we've talked about the resurrection is. And we said this is not a surprise after the fact idea, but this was the foreknowledged um, plan of God from the Old Testament. One of the main verses that I have just sunk my teeth into and they've got up, should have up in the PowerPoint is Zechariah 12.10. And if there is one um, verse to think about the crucifixion and the work of God, maybe here at the end of Mark that I, I've just held on to, it's Zechariah 12.10. Where, I, they're going to pull that up, right there. It says, and I will pour out on the house of David, that's the house that Jesus descended from, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, that's, that's real curious, on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one for an only child, and weep bitterly for him as one weep over a firstborn. I mean, that's just a loaded verse right there, where it's spelling out for us hundreds of years before Jesus comes that there will be this only begotten firstborn son who will be pierced in such a way that grace and mercy is just, it's entering the scene like never before. And so we talked about this, of that they pierced Jesus underneath his uh, ribs and it pierced his heart sat such that blood and water flowed out. And I say this to you, church. Another man previous to Jesus anticipated this and was pierced in his side and out came a bride. It was Adam. See, Adam was the forerunner of Jesus in that Adam brought forth a bride from a side. See, Jesus, the last Adam, brought forth the church from a pierced side in a sacrifice of himself. Are you tracking? This is the beauty of what your God set up in order to bring you to himself. He died, pierced for our sins and transgressions, buried, and he rose. And then last week we dealt rather heavily with the apologetics that surrounds the resurrection, and that it says in 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's arguments to argue people to understand the historicity of the resurrection is there, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. That's not a mass hallucination because when I know as Colorado people, you understand hallucinations. When you have a trip, you trip solo. There ain't no group trip that people have. They had more than 500 people, and he's like, look, you can get on your cell phone, and you can call them. You can talk to people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. More than 500 at one time. The evidence of the resurrection is overwhelming. The question is, is what are you going to do with this eyewitness account that is put forth by Scripture and by history? Now, their response after they see what they saw, is in verse 8. And they went out, chapter 16, verse 8, uh, speaking of the ladies, and fled from the tomb, trembling, there's a word, and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
the Greek word here, tromos, which is like tremors, ecstasius, which is like ecstasy. They were in this kind of astonishment. And phobos is where we get the word for fear. And so I would just maybe describe verse 8 as the women leave the resurrected tomb is that it's a mixed bag of emotion, right? Like they've seen something that kind of is um, tingling their emotions on every sense of the spectrum. And they leave to go to the disciples, to the apostles, who we will learn later are mourning and weeping to go tell them what's happening. Now, I'm going to deal with a lot of problems today in this text. Maybe the chief among them is the idea that these women said nothing to no one. That's a little bit hard to believe. I'm not saying that just about women, all right? But I am, right? But I think what's going on here in truth is something so earth-shattering has happened that you don't talk to anyone until you talk to certain ones. Have you ever been there before? Like, you might have a car wreck or something as a kid, and you're going to talk to mom first, definitely not dad, right? Like, you might call your friend later, but there's one phone call that has to happen first. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I think that's what this is getting at, is that the women are so mixed with emotion about what is going on here with this resurrection, they're going to get around to witnessing to tons of people. But you know who needs to hear this right now? The Lord Jesus says, go tell all the disciples and Peter. There are some people that this resurrection impacts first. And while they're going to talk to lots of other people later, they need to talk to certain people right now. And so they leave. Now, let's get into what is happening here with brackets. Almost everybody's Bible here is going to be something like some of the earliest manuscripts don't include verse 9 through 20. And it's going to have kind of a thing down at the bottom and, and discuss what is going on. And then it'll pick up. Well, one of the issues here is... It, that is where verse 8 ends. That's a very weird ending. Now, some could say Mark has been rather rapid. It make a lot of sense to begin with. But there is something going on here what's called textual criticism that I think is, first off, I'm going to go off on a pet peeve. This is completely inappropriate to put into someone's Bible because it creates more questions than it does answers. But at the same time, I'm against study Bibles that many of you are carrying right now. Because many of you use your study Bibles and you read the little thing on the side more than you read God's Word. But we don't want to get into that, do we? Right? I have no problem with study helps. I just hate putting them right next to God's Word. Is that fair? Like, I would rather you just have a copy of the Scripture, read God's Word, and then if you need study tools, get them somewhere else. I found so many, as I was doing student ministry... People have student Bibles, and they never read the Bible. They read the stuff on the side. So that, this is kind of a pet peeve to begin with. But now it creates a question that I, I kind of need to engage with. I, I, I can't handle this completely um, in this service, but let me give you a little bit about what's going on about the Bible. Go to the next uh, slide. Let's talk a little bit, just a bit, about where we get the Scriptures from. Our Bible is composed of a ridiculous horde of copies, a ridiculous, unlike any other ancient document, copies. Um, they're earlier than any other ancient document. They're closer to the originals than any other ancient document. And they should not even exist. Because after the first century, in the second and third century, the greatest superpower in the world tried to eradicate Christianity. They were killing Christians. They were destroying our churches, and they were trying to destroy our scriptures. And yet, tens of thousands of copies of the scriptures remain. And here's what that says to me. God preserves His Word. God preserves His Word. Take every superpower from the United States to China to Russia. They are incapable of destroying the Word of God that lies in front of you. God preserves it. Let me give you even an illustration of, um, there's a group of early church fathers. I quote them a lot because that's a part of my academic background is church history. There's a group called the uh, anti-Nicene fathers. Anti just meaning before the Nicene fathers. Nicaea is when they recognize the collection of 66 books in your New and Old Testament. Previous to this, it had been in authority and recognized by the church. 
they were not doing anything new. We know this because the early church fathers quoted the scriptures in the New Testament 32,000 times. Do you know that even within the first 200 years of the church, that the early church fathers quoted the New Testament such for apologetics, for commentaries, for theological writings, that you could reconstruct the whole New Testament just from their quotations. What, what I find about that is, compared to the blogs and, and crap that you read, is that so much of what Christians write about today, you can read their blog and there's no scripture in it. But you read the early church fathers, and they're writing to their culture, writing to the smartest people in their circles, they're writing to scholars, and they're quoting God's word knowing that it's powerful and effective. We need to get back to understanding that it's not witty phrases that win our culture. It's not a turn of a phrase. It's God's word. You could, you could reconstruct the whole New Testament from their 32,000 quotes that they have. These anti-Nicene, before 66 books. So, people who say that, you know, a council decided what was going inside the Bible are wrong in their approach to what they did. What they saw was the church for all times everywhere had recognized these 66 books. They had been held in authority as divinely inspired. There's this word that we use called canon. It's the measuring stick by which something comes into Scripture. And they had to be written, they had to be a direct eyewitness, and there were certain criteria that they put within the canon. And all across the world, in different languages and cultures, people recognized the same books of the Bible. What happened in Nicaea was certain people started to come in in the late uh, 3rd century and 4th century and start to say, well, we don't like what this book says, or we don't like what this book says. So they start taking it out. So the church got together worldwide for a and said, these are the books that always been here. Do you understand the difference between that and saying, let's sit around and choose some books to put in the Bible? Those are two very different things. The church recognized at 325. So one of the things that comes into this is once Constantine is likely converted around 325, what you have in the Roman Empire is an explosion of evangelism and the copying of the New Testament. You have an explosion of that. By the way, by 300, likely Christians who started as a small minority of thousands of people on Pentecost had reached over half of the Roman Empire. few hundred years, they had reached half of the Roman Empire. I know for us, we think reaching Colorado is impossible. Right? But by 325, Christianity becomes legal because Constantine ain't no dumb. He sees the tidal wave of Christians reaching the whole world. And he gets on board with Christianity, which allows us enough freedom to evangelize to the ends of the earth. And we've continued to do that since. And to copy the scriptures. So once these copies, it just explodes. All of these tens of thousands of texts, we can compare. One of the things that I did in seminary, one of my concentrations... As you kind of notice sometimes here, is that is biblical studies. So I do I handle with the original Greek and Hebrew. You can go to our seminaries, Southern Baptist seminaries in Fort Worth. We have some of the oldest copies of the Old Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls. My professor spoke 17 languages and handled the original Hebrew of those scrolls. You can go there and tour the scrolls in Fort Worth, Texas. We keep them there so the Texans surround them and just <clears throat> protect them. And we, sur and we protect Texas with Oklahoma. That's a, whole, that's a whole other thing. You could take these tens of thousands of texts and there is zero doctrinal differences between any of them. There's marks where some of them have been burned up or there's missing you know, letters and things. But there is zero teaching difference between any of these tens of thousands of texts. Let me give you a comparison. So bring that chart back up, if you will. Because I know that for many of us, I know, I know you went to public school and community college, and, and you're, you're a genius, and you know all these things about text. But most of us just don't spend our Wednesday studying textual evidence. So I'm just going to give you a little sample. If, if I can get my life kind of <laughs> squared up not doing other things, 
I would love to teach a whole class here on a Friday just about where we got the Bible. I think it would be awesome for us. And, and so I'm, I'm trying to get our things lined out here at the church so I can do more classes like this. Because it's just inappropriate to go real deep on it here on a Sunday morning. But I, you just got to see this, okay? So compare um, Plato, for instance, the dialogues. The original date of that document was 4th century B.C., before Christ. The earliest manuscript was 3rd century B.C. So the gap between those two things is 150 years. The total amount of copies that they have of that is around 210 to 240. Okay? That's not the best one. The best, Homer's Iliad, is a 9th century B.C. Okay? So this is an ancient document. Closest to the Bible is Homer's Iliad, as far as its historicity. It was from the 9th century B.C. That's 900 years before Christ. The earliest manuscript that we have is 400 to 415 B.C., Right? 1,800 copies or fragments separated by 400 years. That's the closest you get right there. Go down to Julius Caesar's in the Gallic Wars, 58 to 44 B.C. That's right around the time of Christ. Right? 3rd century, um, sorry, 9th century A.D. 900 years separation from the time Julius Caesar and the Gallic Wars, which is basically them conquering the French. Everybody loves to write about that. 900 years separation between the original document and the copies. Okay, go down to the Bible. New Testament Greek manuscripts. The earliest we have are within 45. Okay, Jesus died in the 30s. So you're talking within a decade, we have copies of the New Testament. Right? To 100. 80, 117 to 325. 30 to 300 years, depending on the copies, 5,856. Non-Greek, so this is like where we translated the Greek into Syriac or to other languages so we could share the gospel with Egyptians and, and other languages and people. We have 18,000 copies of the Bible in other languages, right? New Testament manuscripts, so this is like a singular script of like the Gospel of Mark. It's not the whole codex. 24,000 copies, Old Testament scrolls and codices, 42,000. We have over 66,000 copies of your Bible that you have in front of you. I don't know if you're looking at those other numbers. They do good for most ancient documents to have more than 200 copies is like mind-blowing. Like that would be the next place. The Bible, thousands. I mean, Homer's Iliad has 1,800 copies, and that's like second place. 1,800. Your Bible, 66,000. So we can say this. You can be an atheist in here and you can jive with this. There is no ancient document like the Bible, period. That is close to the original time frame that it was written. And we have the variance of copies that we have in the New Testament. Nothing. There, there will never be enough... I mean, we would have to kick over some tomb and discover 60,000 copies of Julius Caesar to even get in the ballpark of the Bible. Does that make sense? That's not happening. This is the only document of its kind from antiquity. And from these copies, all saying the same thing. So if you're asking me one of the reasons why I have incredible confidence in God's Word, I can go to things like this. I mean, I want to preach to people actually what the Word says because I think it changes people's lives. But if you want to talk science and a scientific study of what we call textual criticism, I take people here and say, what do you do with this? Right? I know your crazy uncle says the Bible's been changed and he watched Da Vinci Code and all this stuff. But what do you do when you actually look at the scholarship? Does that make sense? So what's happening here in Mark? What is happening here in Mark is in the 300s there was two codices, that is, codified collections of 66 books of the Bible. They were not singular manuscripts, but they were actually books or codexes. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and neither of them, two of them in particular that are early manuscripts, do not have the ending from 9 through 20, such that some scholars decided to bracket the end from 9 to 20. And that's exactly what you're looking at. Because of a, primarily because of two manuscripts. 
the Mormons are on their mopeds again. <laughs> Just kidding. Ty, can we edit that out? Um, so, so that's where these brackets, I've heard arguments for the brackets, for the removal of this, arguments keeping it in. No item taught within 9 through 20 is not found in Luke's gospel, because we've got the road to Emmaus, Matthew's gospel, we've got the Great Commission, or the book of Acts. There's nothing here taught that would mark that otherwise. So I, I feel very confident going through it. Again, I can't address all of this on a Sunday morning, because our purpose is to get to what the Bible actually teaches and to the gospel. So let's, let's dive into the scripture and see what it actually says. Verse 9 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. So what this is doing, the same thing that happens in Genesis. It gives a general account of the women coming to the tomb. Then it's going to extrapolate from that a more detailed story of Mary Magdalene's encounter uh, with Jesus, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with them as, she, as they mourned and wept. That's our cowards of disciples. Verse 11. Now when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. Did not believe it. So we know from the other Gospels there's a bunch of back and forth trips that happen by individuals and groups to the tombs that have different encounters. We talked about this last week. One of the strongest apologetics for the authorship and the fact that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, in the modern mind, that wouldn't be a problem. But in the ancient mind, particularly among pagans, they did not regard the testimony of women as equal to men. It was more like criminals, slaves, or secondary. Now, that's not true in the church because we can even see in Scripture where women's testimonies or exchanges of property happen in the Old Testament. God has an incredibly high view of women. No feminist or gender studies professor has a higher view of women than the God who created women. Amen? And so we said this is a problem. Celsius, an ancient writer in the first couple centuries who is being um, witnessed to from a Christian, responds that no man in the ancient times could be expected to believe based on the hysterical account of women who witnessed it first. What was a problem in the first century is actually really helpful for us now. That is, nobody would have chose women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection if they were making up a story. So the question is, is why were women the first witnesses? Church, it's because it happened that way. Because God chose it to be that way. So what's hurtful and was actually a hindrance to them witnessing in the first century is really helpful for us in the 21st, right? I mean, let me just pause here for another thing and say this. It was so interesting going down to Guatemala because we saw so many church mamas. Y'all know what a church mama is? They may not have ever married or had kids. They might have a whole bunch of kids. They might be widowed or divorced. They, but they're in the church and they are mothering the church. I would say that church mamas are the complement to male leadership and elders. That if you just have male leadership and elders, but you don't have church mamas making the rest of it go, our church is doing nothing. Amen? And I'm so thankful. I thought about so many women that are in this church who are mothers in this church that do a thousand acts of service and grace and witnessing that nobody sees, and yet it changes history, y'all. God has a role for every single woman in our church. Every single woman in our church. And I, I just love, as we went down to Guatemala, there was these women, man, I tell you, they, they just work and serve and pray and preach. I just love it. In this why are the women these, God chose it this way. And I would argue this is a picture that's happening in the background. Just as Eve was the witness to the dawn of death, so a, a woman would be the first witness to the dawn of redemption. 
And just as we fell into sin and death in the Garden of Eden, so we were redeemed through what happened in the Garden Tomb. God, God did this. And I think we come to this and we say, well, that's just ancient man. Ancient man believes in stuff like miracles and resurrection and all of this stuff. We talked about this a little bit last week. Even you'll get on forums and people say, well, those are just Bronze Age goat herders. They believe in that kind of stuff. But after COVID, every American just wants to leave a city and start a homestead and have goats. So we got to let somebody's hypocrisy slide here, all right? And we talked about this. It's like we can't reproduce what created the pyramids with their technology, yet we think we're smarter than them. We have a modern bias that we think we're the most intelligent people that's ever lived because we have an iPhone in our pocket. But have you ever been on the Internet and realize we might not be as smart as we think we are. I went, uh, yeah, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to put us down, but I got to put us down a little bit. I went to my son's football game in Aztec uh, yesterday. And I walked in. I had one son with me. My other kids were off somewhere else. I was paying for one. $5 for an adult, 3 for a kid. Me, one, and I, the woman looked at me and said, that'll be $12. And I said... Uh, $5 for adult, 3 for kid. Yeah, I said, that's $8. And I said as nice as I could, okay? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I need a nap today. It's been a long day. I said, hey, no, no problem. I hate math. It's no big deal. I hand her a 20. She gave me $7 back. <laughs> and I said, nope. And she goes, oh my God, I can't believe seven. She gave me Two more fives. At this point, I'm making money on the deal. I'm getting paid to watch my son play football. I looked at her and said, still no. She goes, I have no idea. I said, let me help you. I'm going to take these things. I'm going to walk away. We leave. I walk out of there. I, I promise you. Walk out of there with Malachi. And I said, Malachi... Sometimes, son, you don't understand why we try to school you, right? This is why we do math and stuff. Later that day, I send him to the concession stand to buy snow cones. They are a certain unique price. He comes running back. It's like, Dad, all these snow cones, they only, they, that lady didn't know how to do math. She gave me like 15 bucks back. from the. It happened twice. But you're the most important. I'm telling you, you guys are so intelligent. You modern men. I know math under 20 is really difficult. Right? It's, I know fifth graders can do it. Have you, I think it's really hard for us because ancient people aren't around to argue with us. It's a one-sided argument. We're the smartest, most evolved people, on, and there's nobody to check us but us. Listen, this question about whether the resurrection happened is not about intelligence. It's about integrity. It's not about intelligence. It's about integrity. Did they tell the truth? You, you may not be the smartest person in this room. You may not be the smartest person in human history, but you can be honest. What we see here is an honest eyewitness account. Here's what the response is. A resistance to belief. Is that not what happens? Verse 11, but they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, but they would not believe it. So your Bronze Age goat herders don't believe this. Verse 12, and after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country as they went back and told the rest. But they, look at your Bible. What does it say? Did not believe them. Right? Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves. So not until Jesus first hand appears, does it, and as they were reclining at the table, probably leaning back in their chair, that's what I did before as a kid, and he rebuked them for their, look at your Bible, unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Here's what happens in the second account. 
The second account is the road to Emmaus, which we get more details from in Luke chapter 24. Jesus appears to two disciples walking to Emmaus, and he walks up among incognito. Makes it, the Bible's kind of curious about how they don't recognize him because their eyes were covered. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And it's like, what are we talking about? What is everybody talking about? Have you not, are you a stranger? Are you a foreigner? Do you not know the things that happened? There was this cat named Jesus. And we, he was mighty man of God and all this stuff. We thought he might be the Messiah. And then our rulers put him to death and killed him. Now it's been three days later and we got women telling us that he rose from the dead. So we got all kinds of questions and debate and discussion to happen. Right? I mean, and Jesus, I love this, walks up next to him and says, what things? What things been going on? Tell, tell me about it. And they kind of lay it out. Are you not watching the news? Are you not seeing what's trending on Twitter? Are, are, you, are you out of the loop? Right? Jesus enters it and it says, beginning with Moses and the prophet, he begins to, to unpack for them how the Messiah had to suffer for sin and rise from the grave. Jesus has a little Bible study with him and just kind of opens up. Would you love to be in that conversation just Jesus from verse by verse in the Old Testament just saying, this, is, this, whole, thing, this whole Old Testament is about me. Start with Moses. And he unpacks it. And they still didn't get it. They go inside, and it's not until Jesus breaks bread, communion, that their eyes were open and they recognized who he was. And they said, did our hearts not burn within us as he spoke? That's what happened when Jesus preached, hearts burn. See, they were, they were hard-hearted. Uh, scara cardia. That's what this is called, hard-heartedness. It's almost like we're... Well, sounds like it's like a scarred heart. It's like so many of us, we've believed before, but we've gotten burned because we believed in the wrong stuff, that we get these scars that make our heart like really hard, and we have this tendency where we don't believe anyone or anything, and we're just hard-hearted. And it's until like Jesus just like elbow drops that and rips that heart open that we will ever believe. It says that they were resistant they were doubting Thomas standing there. Unless I see it, I'm not believing it. They refused to listen to eyewitness testimony. They're just like your neighbors. They're just like your family. They're just like your coworkers. Refuse to listen to eyewitness testimony. I believe with all my heart. Why did it happen this way? It happened this way because the apostles were allowed to hear of the resurrection before seeing the risen Christ firsthand in order that they may know from personal experience what it means to depend on the testimony of others, which would, by the way, be the case for nearly everybody they ever preached to would be depending on somebody else's testimony just like you did. We depend on the testimony of Scripture the testimony of history, the testimony of a living church that has been transformed by the gospel. But they are depending on secondhand testimony. God uses that to give them their own firsthand encounter. See, the apostles didn't have a firsthand encounter first. They had to hear testimony like you did. It's powerful. Now, get down in this. Okay, let's get into the problems with this text. Um, they reclined table, verse 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Church, if you're a born again believer here, that is your marching orders. I don't care if you're a house church leader, Sunday school teacher, you are Awanas, Cubbies, I don't care if you're a kid or if you got all gray today. That's your commission. That's on the whole church, not a special class of priests or pastors, the whole church. I'm going to come back to this. Now, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, this creates probably one of our first questions. Some of us have grown up in denominations that believe in a doctrine called baptismal regeneration, and they will oftentimes jump and proof text from places like this. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, one of the issues here is, on the first part of this, if you only quote the first half of this verse, which is really easy, you can make up anything if you quote half a verse. 
believes and is baptized, but I've taught you this. The word baptized is just the word buried. If we go and bury trash, it's the same word baptizo as if we go and baptize. So there's a sense in which baptism and burying are together will be saved. But in the second part of the verse, it does not say believe and baptize. It says just simply those that does not believe will be condemned. Which says that what alleviates or rescues us from condemnation is not the work of baptism after belief, but belief alone in the second part. Let's look at a couple other verses. Go to the, if you will, pull up the PowerPoint. We'll look at this. Jesus comes at one point and says that you must be, John is preaching at one time, says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is a differentiation from water baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, here's my thing about people that want to say that baptism saves you. None of you are letting us get an old propane tank, with, put coals in there, and gas, and start a fire. And have a propane tank full of fire and throw you in there. But the Bible says you've got to be baptized with fire, Right? Nobody is letting Toby get a blowtorch and light you on fire as your baptism. I think every single one of us understands that the baptism primarily that Jesus has come to do in our hearts is to scorch our old man and fill us with the Holy Spirit's fire. I think everybody knows that this is talking about the internal transformation that we've all experienced. That if you describe what it was like Jesus coming in my life, it was like fire, y'all. But we ain't trying to go out there and say that you can't be saved unless we blow torch you. Right? Okay, go to the next one. Go to a couple of this. This is probably one of the main arguments for baptismal regeneration. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus. For, I underline that there because that's really the controversy. The forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is preaching and men have already responded to the gospel. He preached in such a way that they have responded. What now should we do? They're asking for, I, I hear what you're saying. I believe it. What is my reaction to it? And he's saying, repent. That is the response to having received the gospel is to turn from sin and towards God. Repentance. Be baptized. Identify with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Name of Christ for forgiveness spent, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the interesting part about this verse is the word for. If you believe in baptismal regeneration, you come to this word, the Greek word ice, and you use it for something. It's like, in order that you may receive the forgiveness of sins, be baptized. That's how they're using for. But the word ice can mean in order that you do something, or it can mean because you do something or have something. For instance, if we say, I went to jail for murder, I do not mean I went to jail in order to shoot a guy. That would be going to jail for, in order that, to murder. No, I went to jail because I already murdered. Does that make sense? If I say, I give Ed a medal for spelling bee. It doesn't mean he's going to go, like, we're giving him a medal. Because, we're saying he, because he could spell. Not he's going to get a medal and then all of a sudden he knows how to spell. God knows medals don't cure things like that. Alright? So we get in this. Go to the next one. I think this is the best possible defense that... The Bible is saying that baptism is something that happens in response to salvation and not magic water that saves us. First Peter, the same one that dictated the Gospel of Mark, because he's talking about the Gospel and the righteousness that comes, and he's comparing it to Noah. Because they formerly did not obey. Notice the center of his topic is obedience. Not faith that makes righteous like Abraham, but obedience that comes from that faith. When God's patience waited in the day of Noah... While the ark was still being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, 
were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. If you stop the verse right there, I could totally see where you could argue for baptismal regeneration. But it doesn't stop there. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What, what is it corresponding to? Noah saves you. Note what he puts right here and I have underlined. Not as the removal of dirt from the body. What he is clearly saying here is, we are not talking about outward baptism. Where dirt is removed from the outside of you. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the inwards parts of your soul being baptized. That saves you. I would say this. I think we could all agree. Unless you've been baptized in your heart where the old man has been put to death and the new man has been made alive through the Holy Spirit, we can dunk you underwater all day long and it does nothing. And trust me, we're Baptists. We'll try. I, I, at the same time, understand that this picture of baptism is so close that this almost seems like one act in the Scripture. But lest we become just like Roman Catholics or some other works-based denomination, if we put works with faith, we rob Christ of glory. We are saved by faith alone through grace alone. To the glory of God alone. Everything that you've ever done, every prayer you've ever prayed, every act of service you've ever done, every baptism, every time you've taken communion, every worship song has been a reaction to that gospel, not an earning of your salvation. That's why this is a stickler, because it is a slippery slope into saying, now we got seven more things we need you to do in order to earn your salvation. Instead of saying, God earned your salvation through Christ on the cross. It's been paid. It's fully. It's done. Now live free. Obey Him. He says be baptized. Listen, be baptized. If you're here, baptism is an act of obedience. And if you've never followed Him in that, as strong as the Bible says it, be baptized to preach the gospel outwardly in the removal of dirt outwardly to show what God's done to remove the dirt on the inside. And I would argue this, if you're here and you've not followed God in baptism, it's going to be really hard for me to believe you're obeying God anywhere else. Like you won't come around believers and celebrate baptism, but you're somehow out there preaching the gospel to lost people who are going to hate on you. That's a stretch. Most of your brothers and sisters in Christ, if they have the freedom to have public baptisms, they go to lakes and rivers so the whole community can see them as they walk through town to make a public proclamation that, that their old man is dead and that they're living a new life for Christ. Those that are persecuted heavily, I've been with house churches in China where they're baptized, baptized in bathtubs because they could be arrested and persecuted for that. But as soon as they're baptized, they unleash them and say, go to your friends, go to your family, and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you. But go ahead, tell me your excuse for not obeying the Lord Jesus in baptism. While I don't think that it saves you, I think we've got to be serious that when God's word tells us to do something, we do it. Amen? Can we agree there? All right. So that's probably the first problem in this text is that it's not saying baptismal regeneration, but it is putting great emphasis on the witness of baptism and its connection to belief, which rec rescues us from condemnation. Verse 17, if that's not enough, look deeper. Verse 17, and these signs, same word for signs that we've dealt with all through the gospel, will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. You're like, I did not sign up for a charismatic church today. I thought it said Baptist. I thought I was safe. I didn't know it was Bapticostal. And they pick up serpents with their hands. If we're doing that today, we're all out, right? I hope. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Which, by the way, it's always one Kool-Aid drink too late when you realize you're in a cult. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So what the mess is going on here? So these signs cast out demons, tongues, serpents, poison, sick. Some people come to this passage and say this is 
prescriptive that every single believer must be able to do one or some or all of these or they are not a genuine believer. That is a complete um, misinterpretation, misfocus of the text. Here's what I take from this passage and I'll kind of explain why in a second. Christian, when it comes, note that the verse that came before it is preach the gospel to the whole creation. If you are out preaching the gospel to the whole creation, everything that you need you'll have. Everything that you need, you'll have. And if you don't need it, you won't have it. Every ounce of protection that you need, you are untouchable until God is done with you. Nothing can stop you. That's to take from this path. You need other languages? God can cause you, like Peter, to preach and everybody here in their own language. You are not limited in ways the natural man is limited in the endeavor to make disciples of all nations. You need protection? You got it. Everything you need to preach the gospel, you will have. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. There is no demonic force that will stand up against you. There is no sickness that will hinder you Ultimately, there is no serpent or poison or persecution or anything. God is sovereign over all. But, let, but let's talk real talk here for a second. Lest we become some sort of hillbilly cult that has snakes up here on the service. I do not believe that this is telling us that we should become snake handlers. All right? I think that that is the same sin as Satan coming to Jesus and saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple because he won't let you dash your foot on the stone. You are tempting God when you do that. What I think this is talking about is God protects his own as they go on mission with him. Some will come and say, you, you, deadly poison or other things. One thing that I have an issue with my charismatic brothers and sisters on this is they'll say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not a true believer. The signs are to confirm the word truly preached, not to confirm that anybody is a true believer. Nowhere in this passage is it coming to you saying, you're a true believer if you speak in tongues. It's saying that throughout church history, God is even going to overcome languages like Babylon. He's overcoming the Babel of Babylon to make the message of the gospel clear to every tongue, tribe, and nation. See, if you get this focused on your personal salvation and not the mission of God, you've missed the context. A couple things. Paul had handkerchiefs that the Bible says in the book of Acts that if someone took one of Paul's handkerchiefs at a certain time and it was touched to somebody, they were healed. That's unbelievable to me. That's the most creepy charismatic verse you could come up with in the New Testament. And yet, at the same time, Paul himself would have a thorn in the flesh and an ailment that he said would cause him to cry out, your grace is sufficient for me, your power is made perfect in my weakness. So Paul would be used by God to heal others for the sake of the gospel and the mission spreading, but he himself would suffer pain. How about this? Paul also died. There are unique spaces throughout church history where God is going to heal people through the church, that does not mean that the church person that God used for that healing is going to escape death themselves. Or suffering, or being burned at the stake, or being crucified, or beheaded, or shot by a firing squad. Once it is time for us to suffer, and once it is time for us to die, take great consolation in this. You're going to die right on time. You're going to die right on time. And up until then, you're invincible. So go preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul, in the Bible, in the book of Acts, is in a shipwreck. And the ship falls apart, and he's a prisoner. They get to the island. They get there, and all these islanders like look at him. So they're like, all right, well, what do we do? We're in a shipwreck. Which, by the way, if you believe the prosperity gospel, he should have never had a shipwreck. He should have had a cruise. Survives the shipwreck, goes on shore, starts gathering up twigs to make a fire, and a serpent bites him. Anybody know the story? 
And like G, he just shakes it off and throws it. And all the islanders are like, this dude really is, like God hates this guy, right? Because he survived a shipwreck only to die by poison. Then they note that he's been bit by a serpent and it doesn't harm him. And they say, you know, on second thought, I think he's a god. Because nobody can overcome shipwreck and snake bite. Am I right? People in here with phobia of water and snakes, Paul's like your dude. He shakes the snake bite off. They call him God. He's like, no, preaches the word to them. This is an exact illustration of what this verse is talking about. That does not mean you go out here, you help Peggy get rid of some sticks at her house, and the snake gets a hold of you. Brother, sister, you may just be done. God may be just done with you. We all have our timing. What this is saying is that if you need that kind of protection like Paul did in order to preach the word, he's got you. God may also glorify himself and spread the gospel by allowing you to suffer and die for the gospel, just like many of our Arab brothers are getting killed by Muslims overseas. Whatever is best for the glory of God and the spread of the kingdom, we come willing to walk that out. It just, and I would say that every single thing, whether it's protection or power that is displayed in these signs, has been prevalent and existent inside the church. Look at the poison, which is not an 80s band. It's every rose has its thorn. Eusebius, who is the early church father, most responsible for one of our church histories, wrote that in book 9 of his history of the church that Papias tells a story of Barsabbas, who was because of persecution to drink a poison hemlock, which is, for all you scholars you know, that's what killed Socrates. He um, committed suicide with hemlock. They forced him to take hemlock and that he never, as a result of that poison, fell ill and as a result of it was able to stay on mission and to share the gospel. See, there's illustrations of exactly what this text is saying happening throughout history. It's, I, I think it's not the fact that you should go out right now and drink poison. You eat enough poison in your food, Americans. You don't need any more. The fact that some of you are still alive is kind of this verse, all right? But it's the fact that if you need that protection to fulfill your mission and purpose, God's got you, church. This, the signs are not about confirming that you're a true believer. This is about the whole church having these signs, not any individual. It's that if, if you need it, God will provide it. Amen? The, the point of all of these signs, look down to verse 19. And then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken, listen to this language, received, taken up into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down, and they went out and preached everywhere. That's a fulfillment of verse 15. Go preach everywhere. Now, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen. Don't you want this? This is the point of the signs. Any sign. You go down to Guatemala with us and we go to preach the gospel and the rain causes the road to flood out and the tires explode, but all of a sudden we're next to a new community. God allowed that to happen so that we could go here instead of over there where we planned. Tell me if I haven't said this before. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. God will confirm. And here's the thing. So many of my missionary friends that are on the frontier, they would say this happens all the time because there's not a church, there's not communion, there's not worship. There's so many signs that we have in the church of baptism and communion and the congregation and the preaching the word and worship. Those serve as witnesses as well, but because a church is already established in Colorado. But you go upriver of the Amazon where they've never heard the name of Jesus and watch the Holy Spirit be like, you know what, I'm going to do something unbelievable that messes these people up so that they will pay attention to what otherwise they might ignore. See, God works with us, whatever our context. And if here in Colorado, to get a few more of the hippies and the new age and whatever, we got to preach boldly and God's got to do a miraculous sign, church, he'll show up. Will you? Will you? 
Because I have long believed that if the church put more energy into talking to people about Jesus than we do talking about people, we might have already reached our neighbors. But see, we got energy for gossip, but we're coming up short on evangelism. Amen or oh me? It's easier for us to get together and to talk about people than it is to have a prayer meeting. Ain't that real? But it is by prayer and preaching that the nations are reached. Prayer and preaching. So what are we going to be about here, church? It says here, preach the gospel to all creation. You say, but I might lose my job. Lose it. Listen, nobody wants to work. There's 30 other jobs. I might lose my relationship to somebody if I share Jesus with them. It could get awkward. I could lose this relationship. Lose it. If you, don't, if you can't talk about what really matters with your friends, you're not friends. You're acquaintances. You can't talk about weighty, truthful, eternal things. You could just talk about broncos. You're not friends. You might be Facebook friends. But that's what Facebook shows us, doesn't it? That I thought we were friends until you posted about politics. And then I realized we're not the same. Some of us care more about the idolatry of holding on to some sort of relationship more than we care about loving our neighbor and glorifying God with the truth. And that's why we're not preaching to all creation. My, my heart here is that we would have a white hot zeal to make Jesus known everywhere. And let's start with this county. To be discontent until every person in this county hears the gospel. You want to know what our mission is? Let's start there. Right? Listen, if you're going to serve in Awana, don't just show up and do verses. Talk to the kids about the gospel. You will never get in trouble at this church for that. Okay, 1920, it says he was received into heaven. Here's what this is saying. Heaven accepted the offering of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It says that he was received into heaven. Right? I mean, this is interesting. You could have said that he just, you know, like Mario Brothers left into heaven, but it said he was received. It's that his perfection, his life, and death and resurrection was a well-pleasing offering to the Father that was accepted. Al, tell me. <laughs> he ever liveth to make intercessions. To make sure that you got all that you need. Sits at the right hand of the Father. Um, it's funny, football season started. And have you ever seen some players that sit down on the field? And then just get cussed out? Right? Because if you're on the football field, you're there to work. But if a kid sits down on the football field, whew, wow. Big mistake. You run everywhere and you stand up the whole game. It's awesome. Why? You don't sit. The job is not done. How about this? Spouses. Have you ever come in and been cleaning the house while your spouse sits? How does that work on your old uh, cardia? You come in. How about this? How, your kid's sitting around while you're cleaning up your stuff. Oh, you don't like sitting so much, do you? Listen, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God to make intercessions because everything you needed to have done for you to be saved has been done. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave to give you new life. And now he's interceding for you to make sure that everything you need to complete the mission to Christianize the whole world you have. Say it again. You have everything you need to Christianize the whole world. Because he stands and intercedes for us. You have everything you need to share the gospel and to disciple your kids and your family. You have everything that you need because he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you to share the truth with your neighbors. You have everything that you need because he's sit down at the right hand of the Father. 
I love this quote, and this is where I want to end with the gospel. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. You stand before God as if you were Christ, righteous, because Christ stood before you, stood before God as if he were you, a sinner. You stand before God as if, he, as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he was you. That's the gospel. Let me pray for you. Father, I love these people. These are your people. Father, I don't know what sin needs to be repented of, what attitude and spirit needs to be changed. But God, we come to the gospel where you substituted yourself on our behalf that we might have righteousness, right standing, peace, and eternity with you. Father, um, send your Holy Spirit to convict us of what we need to do whether it's to obey you in baptism, whether it's to have an awkward conversation with a family member. Father, whether it's to dive into your word and share your word with others and serve. Whatever you want us to do, God, lead us and make it clear. Thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who died that we might live, whose gift and well-pleasing offering was accepted by you, so that we might have new life. It's in His name we pray. Everybody said, "Amen." We're going to enter into.